Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. Today we are looking at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And with me today we have my friend and another one of my Memphis School of Preaching classmates, Cody McCoy. Cody, I want you to introduce yourself to our audience. Hey, glad to be with you, Josh. I'm Cody McCoy, um, graduate of Memphis School of Preaching 2022. Right now, I currently work as the Director of Operations for House to House, Heart to Heart, and Polishing the Pulpit. been married to my lovely wife, Katie, for 22 years. We have three children, and so excited to be on the show with you today, Josh. It's good to see you. Cool. Appreciate it, man, and thank you for uh, taking the time. Uh, more importantly, though, appreciate uh, you contributing your expertise to this. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, we're in John Chapter 1. Verses 19 through 28, just a brief context. Uh, John, uh, the Apostle John, is giving the testimony of John the Baptist. Uh, before this, John, uh, in, this, in his gospel account, uh, started before any of the synoptic gospels. He started with the eternal nature of Jesus in verse 1, uh, talks about his mission as deity uh, coming into the world. Uh, and John, who's uh, task given by God was to prepare a way for him. Uh, John the Apostle doesn't waste any time jumping into uh, John's testimony about the Christ. It's a rich study. We'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll kick off as far as uh, our study in. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Cody, what do you have on verse 19? Verse 19, I mean, I, I just can't imagine... Um, John's thoughts about this, I think that it left such a lasting impression on him, even though he has the aid of the Holy Spirit, that he can recount these things in such detail. Then you put those with the other synoptics, and I think that we get a picture of what happens here. But for me, in a Bible marking perspective, the first thing that I have is circled the word Jews. Now, John will use this word Jews 70 times in the book. And most of the time, not all, but most of the time, He's going to describe the enemies of Christ. So we're not talking about the entire race of Israel here. It's only those of Israel who rejected him with that slant toward the ruling class. You know, it's interesting that, that he'll face such uh, opposition from early on because it'll be later in John 5.35 where Jesus said he was the burning and shining lamp, speaking of John the Baptist, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So there was some time and early on in his preaching, that they were taking delight in him. And I think that this may be the encounter 
that is going to change it all for him, where he does um, become an opponent uh, rather than somebody that would be a burning and shining lamp. In the next place, I've underlined or circled priests and Levites. And I think it's interesting that they're so specific about, about this investigation entourage. Um, they've come out sent by the Sanhedrin because they would be the ones that had the authority to send a delegation out like this, especially being so far from Jerusalem about this one that was teaching that Jews would have to repent. And so when we look at priests and Levites out to the side of mine, I wrote mostly Sadducees. When you look back in the history of the formation in the first century of who these priests were, they were mostly Sadducees. They had the um, backs of the wealthy people. And so a lot of times these positions would be purchased. And we shouldn't be surprised be that these would be Sadducees because of the kind of disinterest in some of the answers that he gives. If you'll remember, it was the Sadducees that only hold to the Pentateuch. And so that slant is going to lean more toward a deistic thought that God just created and stepped away. And so the fact that they would hear these rumors that the Messiah was around um, would, would be interesting to them, but they wouldn't be as familiar with all the Messianic prophecies, only those that would have been in the Pentateuch. And we'll connect this group in a moment to another unlikely group. But the rumor in Jerusalem was there's a man that's saying he was the Christ. Let's go check it out. Now, John wasn't saying that, but that's what the rumor was around Jerusalem. And John's preaching had definitely attracted some attention. When you look at Mark 1, 5, it says that all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, all the region around about Jordan were going out to listen to John. And so that brings us to, to the thrust of this entire conversation when they ask him, who are you? And so let's deal with the motivation first. Could it be legitimate? Could it be an honest question? I highly doubt it. I think that it's unlikely that there was um, legitimacy and honesty in their question. Um, we'll see later on when they deal with Jesus that there's not an honesty to their line of questioning or their methods. And here I think they're thinking, well, we're going to ask John some questions. And if he answers yes to any of those questions about who he is, then we'll charge him with blasphemy, or at the very least, we'll charge him with falsehood. Um, they were well aware, and John would be too. It's the reason he answers the questions that he does is uh, Proverbs 19.9, which says that a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. And I think this is the aim. We're going to catch him in something that we can charge him with. But much to their surprise, it's John that's going to show great humility throughout this entire interaction. And I, and I hope that we highlight it throughout and even in the summary that John was popular. You know, we already read in Mark 1, 5, he was popular. He was beloved. He had loyal disciples, followers that would do anything for him because of the teaching. And what is it that he's going to say in chapter 3? He must increase, but I must decrease. He didn't fall into the same trap that Saul did with David. This wasn't about who's going to be the greater. John already knew, and he didn't fall into that trap. You think about John's history. Um, John's birth was announced by an angel. His mother was barren, and his parents said they were well advanced in age, and so there was something miraculous and special about his birth. They asked, even early on, what kind of child will this be? And they sat back and waited on that. He was prophesied about. So John would have had every reason to give competing answers or to exalt himself, but he never did. 
And so the real answer was already given by John when he wrote this uh, this gospel account in verses six and eight. And then John will give his own real answer in verse 23. He'll eventually answer it. But the fact that they think that John might be the Christ will only strengthen his argument as a witness for the Christ. So he was legitimate. He was influential as a preacher that this investigation committee traveled into the wilderness to see about in the first place. So if they think highly of John and John thinks more highly of Jesus, then you have one great witness of and one candidate for one great candidate for the Messiah and Jesus. You know, one other thing that I want to point out, Josh, and then I'll turn it back to you to see, see what we'll add on this first is that Guyan Woods pointed out that the way that this question, who are you, was constructed in Greek, led with the pronoun. So really kind of the way it reads for us in English is you, John, on your part, who do you claim to be? And so this Jewish idiom um, serves as an internal proof that in the very least that a Jewish person wrote this interaction um, because of the way that this question was asked. It, it is definitely uh, Jewish. They didn't go out there and ask him, John, where are you from? How long are you going to be here? Who are your parents? Uh, what do you do for a living? The question that they asked John is, who are you claiming to be? Well, that's a great point. I definitely, I agree with you 100% that uh, this, and I have this next to the, the, the passage. This is more than a fact-finding mission. Uh, this is more than curiosity. Uh, you put Luke chapter three, verses seven through 14, uh, Matthew chapter three and verse seven, uh, which will, you know, will tie to when we, uh, start talking about verse 24. And then you go down to verse 24 and 25 of this passage. And, uh, what we learn is that this is not the first time that they've come out. They've been coming out it seems on a regular basis, not with the intent of getting to know John, but more of an intent of keeping their eye on him and, and kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, maybe spying on him, uh, making sure everything is uh, on the up and up as far as their standard goes, uh, which leads to that question, like you mentioned, they didn't ask a lot of background and all that. Uh, in this particular interaction, they ask him who he is. And he responds, and we'll just move into verse 20 if you don't have anything else. Uh, he, he responds, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And I, I think it's interesting how John words that. Uh, he confessed twice. Uh, so we're stressing and putting an emphasis on uh, the following statement. And he did not deny, uh, which seems a little confusing, but again, it's stressing the fact that he made the statement, I am not the Christ. Uh, and the point that John here is not necessarily to identify himself, but John's purpose is to stress who he was not, which goes back to what you were saying, coming out, trying to catch him in the, uh, in, uh, a trap to admit that he is the Messiah. Uh, John knows this, obviously. Uh, and so he starts off at the very beginning, stresses he's not the Christ. Then he goes to 21 and says, they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And I found this interesting. I always thought this was weird because you and I know 
uh, based because we have the fullness of revelation that uh, Christ, the Christ and the prophet is essentially the same thing. Uh, so why would they ask him the, the, the same question, essentially? And then, uh, but I think there's some clarity brought when we start to examine the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, there is writings within the Dead Sea Scrolls that talked of an anticipation among the first century Jews of one Messiah, which would fall into the category of Daniel chapter 9, 25 and 26, the 70 weeks and when the Messiah would come and so forth. But what is also interesting is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is that in the first century, there was also an anticipation of three messiahs and a, for lack of a better term, we'll call it a messiah committee. Uh, based on the Dead Sea Scroll writing, uh, there was a belief that you would have a messiah from the tribe of Levi, which would be a priest. You would have a messiah from the tribe of Judah, which would be a king. And then you would have a prophet referencing back to Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18 where you would have a Messiah who was a, a prophet. Uh, Messiah simply means uh, one who is anointed for a uh, special task. Uh, now, Jesus was the Messiah, uh, but there were other Messiahs, technically speaking, uh, and they were prophet, priest, and king. And so there was this, this idea among some of the first century Jews that you would have a Messiahship by committee uh, with these three individuals. And I think that lends some uh, perspective into why they asked uh, this question uh, in particular in the way that they did. He denies that he's the Christ. So then they turn around and ask him, are you the prophet? Are you a different portion of this committee, if that makes sense? And you go over to John chapter 7 in verses 40 and 41. Some argued that he was the prophet. Others argued that he was the Christ. And I think that lends some credence to that thought that uh, there was a misconception about the Messiah and, and who he really was. And, and it was more uh, uh, many different people. Uh, but you and I obviously know that it was uh, one individual who would fill the role as a prophet, as a priest and as a king. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's interesting about that when you were saying that, because there there was no consensus among them. Uh, and sometimes we get the idea, well, was this line of questioning kind of like personality tests? We're going to ask you the same type of question, but we're going to phrase it four different ways, hoping to see that you're inconsistent. And I don't think that you see that here. You know, he didn't answer the question. They asked, who are you? And he answered with who he was not. So I find that that's interesting that he's not going to get caught in words. He said, let's start at the top of the ladder on this guessing game um, with the Christ. I'm not him. And then he's going to say not the prophet and then not um, or not Elijah and then not the prophet. So I, I don't think that they were thinking um, just two questions here. I think they were thinking about three individual persons. Right. Um you know, they asked, are you Elijah? He said, no. Um, and I, I underlined Elijah and I put Matthew eleven fourteen, Luke 1, 17 and Malachi 4, 5. Because in a sense, John was uh, Elijah. He was one likened unto Elijah. Uh, it's a metaphor and it's not an actual uh, reincarnation of uh, Elijah, for lack of a better term. Uh, but he answers, I am not and I underline that phrase, I am not, and I put Mark 9, 
verses 11 through 13, as well as Matthew 17, verses 9 through 13. Yeah. And in those two particular passages, it's just it's the same account, just from two different authors where they're uh, Peter, James and John are coming down with uh, with Christ from the mountain where they had just witnessed the transfiguration. Uh, and on it, God would uh, the father would say, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. And they asked the question because they just now. So the, on the transfiguration, those three, I would say, without a uh, learned, without a doubt, if there was any doubt that Jesus was uh, the Messiah and the son of God for those three on the during the transfiguration, that doubt was removed. Uh, all together. And so as they're coming down, they decide to ask Jesus this question. Why essentially, why do the scribes say that Elijah has not come, must come? Uh, and uh, that lends a couple things. One, it shows us that they were the, the religious leaders were attacking the apostles by saying he can't be the Christ because Elijah has not come yet. Uh, but it also lends us some insight into their thought process. Right. that Elijah, the actual prophet from the Old Testament, the one that was swept up into heaven, the belief was that he would return. Uh, and then Jesus answers their questions at the end of that dialogue and essentially tells them that John, that Elijah has come and that Elijah is, uh, that representation of Elijah, metaphorically speaking, is John the Baptist, uh, which, uh, like you mentioned earlier, as far as the type of person John is John the Baptist, uh, and we're going to see his humility here in a minute to be compared to Elijah by God through the inspiration of Old Testament writers. Uh, I think sometimes maybe we shortchange um, the popularity, the importance, uh, the reputation of John the Baptist, uh, yeah. and I think that's seen here uh, in this uh, line of questioning. Well, and then Christ, obviously, he tells us that, that they misunderstood Malachi, and, and that's what he clears up. You know, the, another thing we already mentioned, that these priests and Levites are here, and that if most of them were the makeup of the Sadducees, when they ask about Elijah, they they really don't care that much. The Sadducees didn't believe in a, res a resurrection, and so they've already dismissed the fact that there is going to be a bodily resurrection of this Elijah that comes to them. And so I, I think that it's just a mystery for them. And we see that in the way that Jesus has to explain the disciples um, how Elijah fits into the picture. Oh, great point. A uh, prophet is taken from Deuteronomy 18, 15, and verse 18. If you have a reference Bible, I would almost guarantee you have no, uh, that be. passage next to it. But if not, uh, this would be a good place to write it down, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. Anything else on 21? Uh, if not, what do you got on 22? The only other thing I want to say about 21 is, is we covered that, you know, is this a second Moses, a second Elijah or the Messiah um, was starting that there was no consensus, but we shouldn't be surprised because they didn't know who Jesus was either. You'll remember in Matthew 16, 14, they're saying, well, some say um, uh, Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, another prophet. And so we shouldn't be surprised that they're not nailing these prophecies uh, about the Messiah. No, great point. Great point. What do you got in 22? All right. Verse 22. While um, they've accepted John's answers, right? He gets shorter and shorter each time with this. He, he said, I am not the Christ. Then he says, I am not. And then he just says no. And it seems that all of these answers are satisfactory then because there's no challenge to his answer. 
But at the same time, he still hasn't answered the question. They don't have anything that they can take back as this investigation committee to Jerusalem and say, okay, here's what's going on. And so they ask him for the second time. Um, and I just put a little number two out beside who are you in verse 22 that we may give an answer to those who sent us. Who do you say or what do you say about yourself? None of his answers were answers to the original question. He was not answering. He was answering who, we, who he was not. And so mm -hmm. then they're just going to ask him, what do you say about yourself then? And John will say very little about himself. He is holding the form throughout this entire interaction. And even in the next verse, it's only to explain his relationship with the one who is coming. And so John's questions are, are, are intriguing to me because even with the Elijah question, he, he answers no to that. And did he fully understand that he was Elijah? I mean, he's answering these things correctly, but it's all with the aim to look. If you want me to talk about anything, I'm going to talk about the one that's coming after me. And th that's about all I have on 22. Uh, that's great, great point. Uh, verse 23, he does answer their question. He answers it with, uh, you know, I, I, he answers it with the prophecy I uh, cited from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. You know, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, as Isaiah said, only note I really made on this is just, uh, just make reference that uh, this is a Septuagint quote uh he quoted from the greek version of the of the old testament uh and so uh any type of translation uh issues that we don't have uh the true word of god because it's in english and it was written in hebrew aramaic and greek uh here we have uh john the baptist the one preparing the way for christ quoting it uh and we have the inspired apostle john quoting uh the greek version of the old testament which lends credence to the fact that our English Bible today is the very word of God, the same it was the way it was in the Greek in the Old Testament. So uh, there's, there, there are many proofs throughout it. Jesus reads uh, from the scrolls uh, of the Septuagint. Uh, so he reads the Old Testament from a Greek translation uh, that we read about, which um, lends credence to uh, to the fact that we have God's word in the English today. Uh, now, this isn't an endorsement of all English translations, right. but uh, we do have uh, God's word in the English today. Uh, you don't have to know the Greek or the Hebrew in order to know God's word. So uh, and this, I think, is just a, a text on that. What do you have? I just keyed in on three words from from the actual prophecy itself, voice and wilderness and then the way of the Lord. In this voice, you know, John John is saying Yes, it's my voice, but it's God's words. Um, he's not claiming a particular message of his own. He's just saying he's the herald and the mm -hmm. wilderness. You know, I tried to look back and, and make a quick reference to it, but I believe that he's the only preacher that we know about that was in a wilderness scenario. I mean, I guess you could say Moses when they're wandering, but as far as um, a, a preacher in the wilderness, which makes him unique. And I think about, OK, in the wilderness, there are no distractions for the audience. It is solely about his message and the words that he's proclaiming, that, that it's God's message. And what's the purpose of it all? It's to make straight the way of the Lord. The purpose was not for himself. 
not even from the beginning when the prophecies were given about John, was it going to be about John, even though in his own right, he was a great and godly man. So basically what John is proclaiming that anybody that comes out to this wilderness to listen to him, he says, look, I am nothing but the message. The message is everything. Mm -hmm. No, that's a great point. I think, and that's a, that's a wonderful point in the sense that it's going to, that that thread's going to continue through the remainder of this passage uh, on John's behalf. Verse 24 says, now they, they were, they had been sent from the Pharisees, uh, which goes back to the thought uh, of of them coming out and spying on him and, and the religious leaders keeping a tab on John. Uh, and then I think the, the true motivation for their reason for being there and the true motivation for their line of questioning in verses 19 uh, through 23 comes out here in verse 25. Then they asked him, why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. And... Uh, this is a, this is, this verse is just, I mean, it's great study on this particular verse. Um, they're essentially asking him by what authority, uh, are you baptizing? And, uh, what do you have there on 25? 25, they can only think of three, right? So, so this is what they've been trying to get to the whole time. You're out in here preaching this message, um, this ceremonial rite, and who else but the Pharisees? It's, it's interesting that they're mentioned right, right before this verse, specifically that Pharisees are there. And they were the prince of ceremony and outward show and um, things that would have to do. They would notice the baptizing part. And this is what they're taking exception with. They're, they're not talking about his message at this point, even though they had a problem with it. They're specifically talking about what he is that he's doing. And by what authority are you preaching these things? God's chosen people need to repent. And then you're baptizing them. And I think about some of the, the studies that done on baptism and, and the way proselytes were viewed in here that the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Jewish um, people as a whole, when they had seen baptism, it involved a proselyte and they baptized themselves. Um, and so I think it's interesting that now they're coming out here and they're seeing a Jewish man baptize another Jewish man that's totally foreign to anything that they know. And they want to know where did the authority come from? Um, John is standing on some pretty good ground, though. You can go look in Ezekiel in chapters 36 and 37, also in Jeremiah, where it's prophesied about a great cleansing that God could pardon their sins. And so there, there should be all, all these connections that are starting to be made that are not being made. And and John is is going to deal with the authority that he has. Um, it's not in himself. Uh, that's, that's great. And I, th I like what you see. I like, like the fact that you're pointing out that that – John is should not be revealing to them anything that they shouldn't already know based on the prophecies of the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the proselyte uh, baptism, uh, which is the one in the Old Testament where uh, Jews would baptize Gentiles uh, to uh, bring them into Judaism. Uh, and I think you start to see the motivation uh, the reason they're not seeing what they should be seeing, like you said, because there's a bias or a motivation that they have that's keeping them from seeing it. When you look at 
what John is doing and John's message. And, and as far as John's baptism, uh, he baptized Jews, not just Gentiles. He was baptizing both. Uh, the, the whole purpose, think of the mindset behind a, uh, especially a Jewish leader who would be the one baptizing a Gentile into Judaism. The motivation behind that is you, Gentile, are unclean. Therefore, you need this baptism in order to be clean like me, the Jew. Whereas then John is saying, you Gentile are unclean, but also you Jew are unclean and you need to repent both. Jew and Gentile equally need to repent, go into the waters of baptism, into his baptism in order to be added to the, you know, prepared for the coming kingdom. And yeah. that would have offended a Jew, especially a Jewish leader at the time, because now, now my nationality is not uh, setting me apart from the unclean Gentile. Yeah. Uh, and that, and, and uh, it, it revealed misconception, you know, this, this new age, that John essentially was preparing to usher in uh, didn't put Jews on that pedestal that they wanted to be put. And so um, I think this is uh, part of it. Um, you, with that mindset, I think we're starting to see that John the Baptist uh, started playing a part in what Paul talked about in Ephesians 2 and verse 14, where uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus broke down that wall of partition. I think we're starting to see that wall of partition being chipped on here by John because he's calling for both Jew and Gentile uh, to be brought in. He's having great success with this message. As you mentioned earlier, tons of people are coming out to hear this message. Tons of people are obeying the message that he proclaims. So wow. he's having great success with this message that says, hey, Jew, you're no better than the Gentile. That's right. Uh, in 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 all this, uh, and with that thought, and and this is just me. Just this, I was just thinking about it uh, as as we we're studying this. It adds to me at least a deeper. I don't want to say deeper, but it puts a different perspective on Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three when he starts talking about baptism. Uh, if Nicodemus had the same mentality that the religious leaders here had, and here's Jesus talking about, you know, baptizing, baptism being the, the equalizer from a race perspective, uh, we all stand at the same, you know, level ground at the foot across. There's neither Jew nor Greek uh, in, in the church. And, you know, maybe there was some of that. Uh, thought process on the part of Nicodemus, and that's why Jesus has the conversation with him that he did in John chapter three concerning being born again through water and so forth. Yeah, and then the only the only other two portions of that, when you're talking about a proselyte, was also circumcision and sacrifice, which is not being required here. And then we're not covering it today, but the verse after what we conclude today is telling them where the sacrifice is going to be. And you know, verse twenty six. John's going to come back to this idea, and and this at this time he's making a, a point of deity. He said, "There's one that's going to stand among you. He's in the flesh. 
John had already written about that in verse 14. And the emphasis when we're continuing this conversation about baptism is in verse 26, uh, the American Standard Version, John says, I baptize in water. And I've noticed how the King James Version, the New King James Version, the ESV, other translations have translated it with. And so when you go back and look into the Greek of what John is actually saying here, um, the word in, in the Greek is used some 2,700 times in the New Testament in the date of case. And in its most natural and most common translation, it's going to be translated in water, not with water. Now, when talking to Greek teachers and things like that, they told me that one would have to have a pretty peculiar motivation not to translate in water. And, and I can't help but ask, because these are modern day translations in English, was the motivation, the acceptance of sprinkling and pouring that had come on the scene centuries after these patterns that were being established in the, in the first century. And simply just to point out in this verse, that if you circle with and have in out beside that, that it's a word of location. And I think it's important for us to make a note of that. Good point. Very good. Um, you have anything on the statement of verse 26, uh, but among you stands one you, you do not know. Just that they're going to know him. I mean, that's the purpose of what John's out here, right? He's already quoted his purpose and that he's going to be able to come. He talks a little bit more about it um, as we come down through here, but he's laying the foundation to start talking about the deity of this Messiah that's coming. And I think he gets a little further into it in the next couple of verses. Yeah, good point. Um, I put in that, I underline that phrase, one you do not know, and I put verse 10, uh, where it says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So John is categorizing them as in that group, uh, which is earlier in John is classified as the darkness. The light came in and darkness. And so uh, I don't, there are two, I, I would say they're, John, more important than by what authority I'm baptizing and the fact that I'm not the Christ, that I'm not Elijah, and that I'm not the prophet. John points out two more pressing matters of which they should have been concerned. And one is among you, so that the Messiah is here, and two, you don't know him. Now, Boltman, in his commentary, is very uh, quick to say that that John did not meet uh, John did not mean that Christ was present with them at this moment. But then you start right. looking okay. at other commentaries uh, and the examination of the language, and so forth. And there's a good possibility that Jesus was a witness to this interaction. And so what John possibly saying here is that there is one in this very crowd whom you do not know who you should be asking these questions, to whom you should be asking these questions. Um, whether it's the case or not, I don't think we can go one way or the other and say he's emphatically not there or emphatically that he is. But how interesting would that have been if Jesus had been standing in that very crowd witnessing this uh this interaction. I think the apostle John was there because uh, he, you know, we find later on in the chapter that uh, this disciple, uh, that he was a disciple of John's before he uh, became a disciple and apostle of Christ. Uh, 
and I think you're right. I think this is a significant moment in the life of John uh, as John the Baptist disciple and as the apostle of Jesus, this interaction. And that's why I think it lends credence to the fact that uh, that the shift of favor to non-favor with the religious leaders probably took place at this interaction. Right. It's definitely headed that way. And the one thing I think about them not knowing him is that anytime we begin to know somebody, there had to be an introduction first. Well, this is the start of John's introduction. And as far as whether Christ is there or not, it seems like one of the accounts talk about how on the next day, Jesus came down from wherever he was. And, um, right. Later on in this chapter, it's going to talk about the next day, him being baptized. So I would probably lean toward he wasn't there for this particular interaction, um, just based on the other accounts. Good point. Verse 27, even though uh, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. What do you have there? Uh, I wrote out beside it forerunner. Right. He's he's going back to his comments before he's putting the focus back to Jesus. And we've already talked about the great man that John was. Jesus would say later on that there was not a man born of woman that's greater than him. And what does Matthew he do? 11, 11. He's, he says, look, there's the lowest ranking servant that's within the home. And this is what he would perform. He would undo the shoe latchets. He would wash the feet. And he said, as, as great as anybody may think that I am, and the message that I'm proclaiming has elevated me anyway, let's stop and consider this, that I'm not even worthy to be the lowest ranking servant to the man that I'm trying to tell you about. I, I just think that that's fascinating that his humility cannot be overstated in this instance of how he's trying to introduce them to the Christ. A great point. Uh, Rabbi Joshua Levi, uh, who lived uh, around the in the third century, AD 20, our 8250 in his writings lends some thought process into Jewish tradition. And he, he said this all manner of service that a slave must render to his master. The pupil must render to his teacher, except that of taking off his shoe. Uh, and there's that, that thought there that, that illustrates how lowly of a task taking off the shoe, washing the feet, uh, of the master was that the the student was to do everything for his teacher except that even even that's too low for the student if that makes sense uh yeah. and then here like you said John's making the point Matthew 11:11 11, 11 is where Jesus said of all those born of woman there's none greater than John the Baptist uh John uh to illustrate his humility is that uh, a lowly task that was even uh prohibited to uh, of the students of the teacher, John said, I'm not even worthy of, of that lowly task. And I think the only thing that overshadows the humility of John here in verse 27 is the humility of Jesus in John 13, when he washed uh, the feet of the, the apostles along that thought, uh, you know, it was the, the students that should be rendering service unto the teacher. Yet you had the teacher rendering service unto the students. Yeah. Uh, and so I made that comment. I also put Matthew 17 and verse 12. 
next to this where Jesus said, so also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. He talked about what John suffered and that he would end up suffering as well. Uh, and the precursor preparing a way, he, he prepared a way, not only a message uh, and in ministry, but he prepared a way as far as persecution and what as well. Uh, and if they hated the immerser, John the immerser, because of the message he had, then this would explain why they would hate Jesus as well, because Jesus was fulfilling the message that they hated so much uh, in the first place. Uh, so very good. What else you got? Well, John, I think he makes a statement of deity here. When you look at the coming after me, what is preferred before me, this preferred, when you look at the original language, means to come into existence, to begin to be or to uh, appear in history, come upon the stage, if you will. And John was six months older than Jesus. So, so if you're going to be technical and physical about it, um, Jesus in the flesh did not come before John. And so what is it he talking about? John 1, 1 through 3, that he was God, that he was in the beginning, that he's always been in existence. And so that's what he's talking about, preferred, that he came into existence long, long before me, long before any of the people that were gathered in front of him, that he he is making a statement of deity on behalf of Jesus. Good point. And you can, you can draw a line from 27 down to verse 30, where he says, after me comes the man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And then I'm a Agree with you 100 percent that after is not after in existence. After means manifestation here on this earth. Uh, but his existence is long before. And you'll see it again at the end of chapter eight. And I am statement. Jesus makes that very point yeah. where Abraham even existed. I was uh, existing. So um, what do you have on 28? These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan uh, where John the Baptist, where John was baptizing. What do you have there? This is probably a study for another time, but when you start looking at the possibility of um, Bethabara beyond the Jordan and, and where this is geographically, um, that, it, that it is translated as House of the Ford, so it's a river crossing. And when you look back, we're not talking about the Bethany of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We're, we're Transjordan um, with, the, with the events that are going on here, but wouldn't it be fascinating if this was the same location where Joshua crossed the River Jordan. In Joshua 4, it says that they crossed over and they camped at Gilgal. Well, Gilgal is just east of Jericho, and where we are right now is just east of that over across the river. And if you're talking about what, that they crossed over at that point into the Promised Land, and Jesus is now being baptized to fulfill prophecy in the New Testament Christian, is now baptized um, to cross over into the promised land when this life is over. I, I think that it is fascinating that there's possibility that you have a type of baptism here. Um, and then right. in the second place, I'll, I'll give it back to you, right. is that John was baptizing. So that means it can, uh, denotes a continual action. It didn't matter who of the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin was coming out, challenging, questioning, that he continued to do this throughout his ministry until he was placed in prison. And the boldness was constant throughout his life. It'll actually cost him his life um, because he stands up to to Herod Antipas. No, great point. Um, I'm reminded of John 4. There's there's speculation that where this location was would have been uh, very accessible to the Samaritans. And you see John 4 when uh, 
Jesus tells the apostles to look up. The field is wide unto harvest, and he starts to talk about the one who essentially you're sowing uh, or picking up the work uh, that someone else already started. I think there's a good possibility that that John 4, what that person of whom he speaks is John uh, and the ministry of those who followed after him, uh, uh, which just illustrates the fact that he did a a masterful job of preparing people uh, to accept the Messiah. Because when they found out the Messiah was in Samaria, Samaria in John chapter 4, they all came uh, to hear what he had to say. And I think that's a uh, a testament to the work that John uh, did and continued to do until he was in prison. Uh, very good. Uh, that's it. John 19 through 28. Uh, Cody, appreciate you being on. You have anything to close us out? I do have something, and I don't know if we'll have time for it or not, but I just want to I'll share that when I got finished with this study and I'm looking um, at myself and what we're supposed to draw from this is they went out and asked John, who are you? And so we have to ask ourselves as Christians, who am I as it relates to Christ? And I think that we can take some things from John that John was different, right? In, the, in what he wore, in where he lived, in what he spoke and how he acted. And John was determined to defer. Every conversation was going to turn back toward elevating the Christ. And then in the third place, John was dedicated. You know, he heard about the prophecy that was said about him and remained dedicated to his mission uh, throughout his entire life. He lived in an unseemly place. He wore unseemly clothes. He had a message that wasn't always accepted, um, but he remained steadfast to the preaching um, to baptize um, folks because the kingdom was at hand. And I have a lot of admiration for the character of John. And I think that we should let heaven be our motivation in our worship and in our study in our evangelism and in all of our relationships. And that's what I gain from, from who am I as it relates to Christ. Very good. Can't think of a better way to close it out. Cody, again, thank you for taking the time, uh, not only to be on the podcast, but to study and prepare for it. I know that takes a little bit. Uh, so appreciate that. Um, for those listening, do us a solid like, share, subscribe, help this channel grow, help it spread uh, throughout the various social medias, which are down in the notes. And until next time, uh, appreciate it. Reach out to us. Let us know how you mark up this particular section, if there's anything you noticed or if you have any questions. And with that, we are out. Thank you, guys. Thank you.